This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. My name is Sundasmati McCarthy. I'm one of the academic advisors here at Moraine Valley Community College and a co-advisor of Arab Student Union and a member of the Arab, Arab Heritage Month Committee. Uh, we will actually be passing out a sign-up sheet if anybody is interested in Arab Student Union or finding out more information about the events that are happening um, during the Arab, Arab Heritage Month. First off, I'd like to thank Troy Swanson and the staff for helping us organize this event in the library. We appreciate having a space on campus where we can discuss important global topics like the current issues in Syria. Several students, faculty, and staff members have been discussing the crisis in Syria over the last year. And we've wanted to put this, uh, this event together to get the word out, to discuss the humanitarian crisis and, uh, the Syrian people have been currently facing. For those of you that are not aware of the current situation in Syria, or haven't been keeping up on the events of the Arab world over the last year and a half, um, also known as the Arab Spring, we hope this opportunity today gives you some insight into one of our current issues facing the people in the Arab world. Thank you for being here and joining us today. How many of you guys have uh, family in Syria or um, anywhere in the Middle East, surrounded, those surrounding countries? Okay, so a lot of, it seems like a lot of you. This topic may touch home for many of you, which is one of the reasons why I got involved in setting up this event. My family was displaced to Syria from Palestine in 1948 and is now suffering the horror once again. I can't ignore what's happening to them, just like many of you can't ignore the circumstances your family faces overseas. But not everybody is aware of what's going on. And for those of us that are aware, it's so hard to understand why this crisis has been going on for so long. Today we're going to be viewing a documentary called, uh, titled The Suffering Grasses. It's directed by Ira Lee. This film seeks to explain the Syrian conflict through the humanity of civilians who have been killed abused and displaced to refugee camps. To accompany the documentary, I'd like to introduce our speaker, Rama Kadaimi. Rama is a Syrian-American activist living in Washington, D.C. She has a uh, Master of Arts degree in conflict resolution from Georgetown University, as well as a Bachelor's of Science in Journalism from Northwestern University. Rama serves as, a member, as uh, the membership and outreach coordinator at the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation and has worked with other grassroots activist organizations including Code Pink and the Washington Peace Center. Her writing has been published by the Al Jazeera English, The Progressive, and Alt Muslimia. She has lived abroad in both Syria and Egypt. If you could please help me welcome Rama Kadaima um, up here to help us to set up the event. Thank you very much for that introduction, and I am so happy to see so many of you here today. Um, I'd like to thank the Celebrating Diversity Task Group, the Arab Heritage Month Committee, and the Arab Student Union for having me on campus to discuss this uh, very important issue and I see that a lot of you had raised your hand that you have family um, in the region, whether it's in Syria or in any of the surrounding countries. 
And that's kind of where I come, like uh, Sundus mentioned, I'm Syrian-American. I was born and raised in Chicago, um, but I have family uh, back in Syria. My family's from Damascus and Hama. Uh, Damascus is the capital. Hama is about an hour and a half north of there. And, you know, thank God they're all, they've been safe, you know, physically um, very well. But emotionally, it's taking a toll, and it is on you know, hundreds of thousands of Syrians across the country for those that are in the country and those outside in the diaspora. And so, for example, this morning I was overhearing my grandfather speaking to one of his friends and he was mentioning on the phone how he's afraid to keep calling his, fa- his friends in Syria because of, he's afraid to hear of their families who are being killed um, or, per- or even worse, that his, he finds out one of his close friends has, you know, himself lost their lives. So it's a very um, difficult time, and unfortunately, in the media, um, especially these days, when things became really violent and things have become spiraling down more and more into a civil war, um, the focus becomes on the violence and weapons, and you lose focus on the human beings and the suffering of what's going on day to day, because people day to day still have to live their lives, and that doesn't get um, in as much media attention as, well, this many people were killed, this is what's happening between the regime and the Free Syria Army. And so my presentation um, is very brief, but really want to go back to the focus of what the original uprising was and um, what's going on with the people on the ground, because I think that's very important. Um, so just some basic Syria facts. I'm not sure how much people know, but you know, this is very important to contextualize what's taking place. Um, Syria, as you can see from the map, um, is right in the middle of the region, surrounded by several countries, including Iraq, Lebanon, Turkey. Um, it's a very religiously and um, ethnically diverse country. Um, so there's been 90% of the population is Arab. The other 10% is Kurdish majority, but there's also an Armenian population. Uh, 74% of the population is Sunni Muslim. And then 12% Alawi uh, population, which is um, an offshoot of Islam as well. And then 10% Christian. Um, it's also a very young population, which is a phenomenon actually across the Arab world. The median age is only 22, so around, you know, a little older than uh, you all here. But it's, uh, it's very important to realize that this is a youthful country, which is one reason why these uprisings are taking place in the region, because these are youth who are getting to a point in their lives where they want to find jobs, they want to get married, they want to settle down, it's getting harder and harder, and this is what adds fuel to people's anger and helps people go out and protest. Um, It's also a very educated young population. There's 90% literacy rates for both males and females um, for the age group of 15 to 24. So again, that adds, these are not um, necessarily people who are not aware of world events. These are people who know how to read, who are very active, and when they get to a certain point and they're unable to get um, uh, employed, that adds again to the anger they feel and why perhaps it pushes them to go out and protest. Um, Bashar al-Assad, who is the current president and the one who is now responsible for the regime and um, is, became president in 2000 after his father, Hafiz al-Assad, passed away, Hafiz al-Assad became president in 1970 in a military coup. And so the Assad regime has been ruling the country since 1970 um, in a very authoritarian dictator way, and there has been no free elections um, since then to, to gauge the people's um, interest and their support for the regime. So the current, uh, we're now in October 2012, Um, But the current events that are taking place have their history since March of 2011. And um, as we know, 
um, in, two, in December of 2010, protests started in Tunisia after a young fruit uh, vendor set himself on fire because of this desperation of being unable to find work as well as being continuously um, having challenges from the government in Tunisia not letting him to find work as well and putting in place uh, roadblocks to him becoming uh, employed and being able to support his family. So Muhammad Ba'azizi um, sent himself on fire and protests erupted in Tunisia and within a couple of weeks Zain al-Din Abdin, the president who had been ruling for decades there, uh, fled to Saudi Arabia. Then in February, in January, we have protests erupting in Egypt against the decades rule uh, of Hosni Mubarak. And within 18 days, they successfully are able to push him out of power. And he resigns. And um, it seems like, oh, wow, there's another victory in the Arab world of people rising up against their dictatorial rule. Uh, protests start in Libya in February. Protests start in Bahrain. Protests start in Yemen. And people are starting to think, okay, will there be anything in Syria? Or is Syria different? Um, Bashar al-Assad famously had an interview when the protests were happening again in Egypt that uh, he said, no, things are different in, in Syria. People love me. They're not going to protest against me. Um, so what happened in March 2011 is these young kids in Dara'a, which is in the southeastern part of, this, of the country, really close to the Jordan border, went out and they were just spray painting slogans of freedom on the walls of, their, of the buildings in the city, very much inspired by what they saw in Tunisia, what they saw in Egypt, what they saw in Libya, Bahrain, Yemen. The youth who were around, all teenagers, so I think 13, 14, 15 years old, were arrested and they were tortured. And brutal torturing. I mean, they were beaten, they had their nails were pulled out. Um, very horrific things were done to them. So the city of Dara'a starts protesting and uh, demanding their release, as well of all of a sudden they are now addressing other grievances. Because it wasn't just, um, sometimes we think just because protests happen right like at a moment, that it's all about what's going on in the moment. And we forget there's a history of grievances that take place to get to that moment. And so in Dara'a, for example, there was a lot of socioeconomic issues. Um, Dara'a is an agricultural town and there had been uh, water depletion around there. So a lot of people lost their jobs because they could not grow agriculture anymore. And so it, there was very high unemployment rate. And so people were angry already. And then this happens as well. And so people are out protesting. The regime decides to react in a very unfortunately you know, brutal way, um, using tear gas, beating protesters. Um, within a, you know, a couple weeks, the regime sent tanks into the city. And all of a sudden, it became even more dangerous because once you have tanks, it, you know, it's much easier to shoot at people, shoot at building, destroy uh, infrastructure, kill people. And so the regime starts reacting like this. The protest, um, they spread into other parts of the country in the southeastern part of the country because what the regime didn't realize, even though they were trying, the regime assumed that what was happening was, oh, just... There was disturbances in Dara'a, okay, there's disturbances a half hour away from Dara'a here. They were looking at it as very separate cases. They weren't re understanding that there was a context to these disturbances and that the same issues that were facing people in Dara'a were issues facing the entire country and that this meant that this was something that's going to be spread and not something they can just shut down in one or two cities. And so problems like people's salaries weren't um, going up even though the cost of living was increasing sharply. Problems like we already mentioned, the drought. The drought was not only affecting the Rauz, it was affecting the entire country. Um, there were issues of Bashar had come in in 2000 and he had implemented a series of uh, 
you know, the opening up of the economy, the liberalizing of the economy, which helped, you know, a certain class of people. Um, but as happens in many countries across the world, when a government opens up the economy and implements neoliberal policies, what happens is the rich get richer and the poor tend to get poorer. And so people, things like neoliberal policies, for example, are very much about there should be no subsidies for things like food, bread, um, fuel. And so people get those subsidies cut off from the government, but the prices of that stuff is also going up. And so all of a sudden, you have less money, and yet you need more to buy the same um, goods that you were buying for your family. And so um, all these issues created uh, a context where it was very easy for just protests, uh, local protests in one city to erupt across the country. And again, the regional context is also important. People were looking and seeing what was happening you know, the success of protesters in Tunisia, the success of protesters in Egypt, that's very inspiring when you see countries who have very similar problems to you and also have, were able to rise up and get rid of their dictators for people to say, you know what, maybe that gives us hope that we can do the same thing as well. And so the barrier of fear is broken. If you hear, if you talk to Syrian activists again and again, they say it was very fearful in Syria. Um, the political situation uh, pre-March 2011. Just people were scared. Even your own family members, you were scared to talk politics in front of them because you never knew who was listening, who might be talking, who might go report on you. Um, there was a very strong um, security apparatus. And so, but the continued protests and then the brutal repression um, just got people more and more angry. And people were like, you know what? If we're going to be killed anyway, whether we're sitting in our house not protesting or out protesting, we might as well go out and protest. And so by May 2011, so we're talking from March to May, so two months, already the protests had spread to major cities such as Homs and Hama, which are in the center of the country. And then in May 2011, also there was a big event that I think got a lot more people angry and out in the streets. Um, Hamza al-Khatib, who was a 13-year-old um, uh, who disappeared from his family home. Um, he went out one day, never came back. He, his body was returned to his family a couple weeks later tortured, beaten, um, there was evidence of cigarettes, butts being uh, all over his body, like someone had taken a cigarette and just burned him with it. Um, his body was unrecognizable, and I didn't put up the picture because it's a very intense uh, images, but that also kind of spread waves. So just like in, uh, in Tunisia, you had the image of Muhammad Azizi who burnt himself, kind of sparked people in anger, this image of this young 13-year-old who was just tortured by the regime um, for absolutely no, I mean, what does a 13-year-old do to get, desert, you know, like you can't, he's not a political prison, he's not, a, he's just a little boy, um, really sparked people angry. And so the violent crackdown continued and changes, um, the chance of the people changed. People at the beginning were very much willing to work within the regime. They, they, the calls were for reform. Um, but once it became more intense and it showed that the regime has zero interest in um, working with the people, then you had the iconic chant of the people demand the fall of the regime, Shab Yurid Skatan Nidam, that you had all across um, the region at the time and continuing. And so, um, again, a lot in the news today is about the violence, the fighting, weapons, who's, who's arming who, who's not arming who, and that misses out the point of the the creative nonviolent action that took place in the early days and continues to take place um, today. Um, going out and protesting is the most basic nonviolent thing you can do. Um, but a lot of times, um, if you study social movements and different democracy movements across the country, nonviolence plays a lot a role in it. And so you had things like people singing and having creative chants 
um, Ibrahim Qashush, who's um, from the city of Hama, um, became an iconic uh, figure because he came off with this song, Yalla Irhal Ya Bashar, which is like, come on, leave Bashar. Um, and his song became popular all across the country. Activists in Damascus would actually um, stuff cassette players and speakers in garbage bag, in garbage bins all across the city in Damascus so that it would be heard um, by people in Damascus so they can themselves, because it took a while for the population in Damascus to um, go out and protest, but so they can be inspired. Um, Ibrahim Kashush lost his life because of this. The regime um, killed him and slit his throat because that's the power sometimes of nonviolent action. We think sometimes violence has the most power, but in reality, sometimes just a simple act of coming up with a song can get you killed. Um, other, way, other things, um, there are massive sit-ins and strikes, and especially in Homs, there was several, and Hama, there are several examples of people sitting in the main squares. We saw images of Tahrir Square for 18 days, and there was a lot of attention in, in Cairo. Um, that happened in all across cities in Damascus as well. Not as massive, um, again, much smaller population, but still that happened. Um, in, in, a, in a city in the suburbs of Damascus called Dareya, activists will go out and give out roses to the soldiers when they'd, be, when they'd see them. Um, and unfortunately, a few weeks ago, there was a massacre in Dareya. So again, those people who are engaged in nonviolent acts also tend to get, you know, get that repression as well. It's not only those who take up arms that uh, end up being killed. It's people who literally believe in nonviolent action and want to try to make sure that the, um, that the regime falls through those means that get affected. And, um, yeah, and then, for example, the cartoons, um, the top cartoon um, is Bashar waiting, waving down Qaddafi, asking him for a ride um, as Qaddafi was fleeing from Libya. And that was made by Ali Firzat, who also is a Damask, is a, is a, is a cartoonist. Um, I think he's from Hama as well. And he, his hands were broken by the regime. So again, the, the power of nonviolence. And so, um, just to get some basic facts now, since March 2011, it's been estimated that 35,000 people have been killed. Another almost 30,000 have been disappeared, which means people don't know what happened to them. These are people whose family members are missing, and you don't know if they were killed, you don't know if they're in prison, um, you have no idea, and you might never know. Um, and this is, again, a case that's not unique to Syria. Um, it's unfortunately all over the Arab world, all over any um, part of the world that went through some sort of revolution and fight for democracy. Um, refugees, we're now talking hundreds of thousands of refugees, and what's really painful about that is that Syria for so long has been home to refugees from all over the Arab world. Um, Sundus explained that her family were Palestinian refugees in Syria, um, so Palestinian refugees, Iraqi refugees, Lebanese refugees, these people are now becoming refugees again, um, so it's a very unfortunate um, situation. Um, there's been several cases documented of sexual violence, of rape being used as a tool, um, to uh, threaten people, so you know you might want to threaten an activist to not be active anymore. You threaten him with the rape of his wife, his daughter, um, and it's very horrific. And that, and so a lot of all of this has human rights organizations across the world demanding that there needs to be investigations into war crimes, and the regime needs to be held responsible for what's taking place. Um, what's taking so long? I think that's a question people ask too. Um, I think people, we saw what happened in Tunisia happened pretty fast, in Egypt it happened pretty fast, Libya we had a NATO intervention that went in and got rid of Qaddafi, um, in Yemen, you know, the President Saleh decided to leave, um, Bahrain, the uprising unfortunately was crushed um, with the help of 
um, certain, you know, U.S.-sponsored Gulf states. Um, but it seems in Syria, it's just like nothing's happening. Um, the international community is frozen, not knowing what to do. And I think um, people are asking, where is the international community? And I think there's many reasons for that. Syria, for once, has a much more diverse population, so it's much harder. Um, people talk about the issue of sectarianism, the issue of minorities being afraid in Syria of what might happen next, especially Christian and Alawi minorities. And so it's much harder to come in and say, okay, we're going to support certain opposition group um, when the they're so diverse in their opinions and what they think should happen to the country. Um, the regime's foreign policy is very much was in tune with public opinion, which, um, which at this, I mean, in the beginning made it harder for people to come out against the regime. I think at this point the regime, you know, has shown its true face with the atrocities it's committed that people can't really justify their support anymore. But in the beginning, that I think made it much slower for the protest to spread and get to a critical mass. Um, this you compare it to Egypt, for example, where Mubarak's uh, foreign policy um, was not at all in line with the people's wishes. Um, if you look at, for example, the blockade on Gaza that uh, the Mubarak regime supported wholeheartedly, I think, against, completely against the wishes of the Egyptian people. And then the regime rule was very authoritarian. I mean, like I already mentioned before, strong security apparatus where you couldn't even talk freely to your family member in your own house. Um, there was no avenues for civil society development. Um, again, if you compare to Egypt, where in Egypt, yes, there were a lot of political repression, but there was, you know, there was uh, space for political parties to develop. There was space for some free press. Uh, there was space for massive protests and strikes, and there was a history of that in Egypt. In Syria, not the case. And, you know, you can go into a lot of reasons why that would, be, that would be the issue in Syria. I think one major reason is that um, this... You know, back in 1982, there was the Hama massacre, I think, which has come up again and again in the news of what of the brutality of the regime, where in just a few weeks, the regime went in and destroyed the city of Hama and killed around 40,000 people, it's estimated. And so that leaves a lasting impression of like, oh, wow, this is the risk that we have to go through if we're going to rise up. And so um, at this point, people are willing to take that risk, but they're having to learn on the spot of how to deal things, like just simple things of how do you, um, what, what does civil society mean? What does it mean to have a non-government group? What does it mean to just organize as a, as a, as a group and figure out and, and, you know, write things like a constitution, et cetera, et cetera. I think that people are learning on the spot versus in other places where they had that little history to be able to do that. Um, the international community response, unfortunately, has not helped the situation. I think uh, Syria has become just a battleground for outside forces to fight it out. Um, we have, we're, I think, witnessing the corruption of the international community um, full force in um, Syria. And it's just causing, you know, unfortunately, it's the people who are suffering the most due to this. So you have, on one side, you have the U.S. and the Gulf states, such as Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and Israel, who are more concerned with, you know, a fake issue of Iranian nuclear weapons than they are with actual suffering of the Syrian people. Um, it's really, really funny when you have you, the U.S. political establishment say, yeah, this is great, we should support the Syrian people in their uprising in order to bring down the regime in Iran. It has nothing to do with the Syrian people. And um, it's just because they have put it in their mind for the past uh, year or two that we need to take down the regime in Iran, and so this is the way to do it. Um, Russia and Iran are not any better. They keep supporting the regime militarily, financially. 
diplomatically. Of course, this is something that all superpowers do. It's really funny when the United States lectures Russia about doing this to Syria, when the Russia, United States does the same thing in Bahrain, when the United States does the same thing in Israel. Um, you know, this is, these are the, we, you know, the U.S. supports regimes, Russia supports regimes, and who suffers? It's the people themselves. And then there's a non-response as well. Um, I think, again, the humanitarian issues of needs of Syrians are ignored because the political agendas serve are more important. And it's so, much, it's so much easier for people to talk about weapons and bombing places than they are to talk about, okay, how do we get food to people? How do we get uh, medical aid to people? Um, the refugees that are now in the neighboring countries, in Turkey, in Lebanon, in Jordan, it's going to be winter time soon, which means they need blanket, they need shelter, they need you know, all these things. But no one really seems to be talking about that seriously, other than like NGOs. The countries themselves, you know, the U.S., the Gulf states, are just um, Iran, Russia. They're just again fighting their little um, political fight. And okay, the Syrian people die. Whatever. Um, this cartoon is from um, Kafr Nabil, which is a city in the northwest uh, province of Syria, in Idlib. Um, they have the most amazing political cartoons coming out of that city I've ever seen. So I would definitely Google them. Um, they, it's, it's phenomenal, the stuff that they, are, that they put together. And um, just a brief, honestly, I wish I knew what will happen. I wish I can give you more positive. Um, the movie that we're going to be showing um, um, focuses on the humanitarian aspect, which I think is one place that we definitely need to make sure that focus on. But I'd like to stress, um, especially, again, when the, when the focus gets on the bigger geopolitical issues and the violence and what happened in Syria, it started off very much as an authentic and legitimate uprising for human rights and dignity. The same thing that happened all across the region, the same thing that happened in countries all over the world when they started to f rise up against you know, military rule, authoritarian rule, demanding that their rights be uh, respected by their governments. And so Syrians, no matter what your political leaning may be, deserve those same rights. And they have the right to fight for them, just like any other uh, population does. I think that's very important to remember, because a lot of times we get caught up with the bigger issues, and we forget this, the, you know, uh, the micro-issues of day-to-day -day living, and why does a person not have a right to just work freely and say what they want freely, and not have to worry about some government officially coming out, knocking on their door and taking them to jail because they said the wrong thing. And, yeah, uh, there's more information. Um, I would highly recommend, if you're more interested, to check out the International Crisis Group. Um, they have several great reports on Syria, on the case of Syria. And uh, I know we're going to be showing the film now, um, but I am more than willing to answer any questions uh, that you all have after. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.